Ephesians 6 today. While you're opening up there or flipping in your uh, worship handout, I want to uh, simply invite you to uh, scan the QR code on the chairs or on the very back of the, the weekly bulletin. That is your key to getting involved in the life of our church. Um, and I want to just reiterate what Connor already gave in our invitation. We've grown a lot as a church family over the last 6 to 12 months. And while that is so encouraging, and we're so glad that you are here, like, it's really, really sweet to see what God's done, especially after COVID times. Things got real tough. And so God has proven himself very faithful. But we are a church family here, not so that we can draw a crowd. We're a church family here so that we could build a community. That's why we're called the Commons LA. You know, you got Covell Commons up on the hill. My wife's family lives in Columbus, Indiana, where they have the Columbus Commons. It's a place where you can all gather together, celebrate, share concerns, uh, work together, be unified. And we as the Commons LA are not unified by four walls. As great as, it, great as it is having these four walls around us, we are united by being centered around Jesus. That's why our first value is to live Jesus-centered. But we're not living Jesus-centered simply by being a part of a crowd gathering as a church. Worship requires participation. And so, with no shame, I will invite you to take steps of actually belonging and actually contributing. There's not some secret club of leaders that's building something big that you need to fit into. There's a group of servant leaders that want to empower you to do the work of ministry and be the body of Jesus. So as you, you scan that QR code, you can get connected into our weekly communications to know what's going on in the life of community. You can sign up to find out information about serving and using your gifts to build up the body and advance the mission and show acts of mercy and do justice with us. You can give financially in honor of the fact that God has entrusted to you what he has entrusted to you financially. You can be belonging community and actually have a people who are your people following Jesus together. So, I would encourage you, take steps there. Don't live in isolation. Don't be convinced that mere association with the church is belonging in a body. Amen? Yeah. Okay. Ephesians 6, verses 16 uh, through 18a, okay? When there's a letter after a number in the way that we refer to a Bible verse, A refers to the first part. Normally, it's marked by like a comma in our English Bibles, and B would mark the second part, just so you know. Would you stand with me as we read Scripture? Why don't we read this out loud together? Um, it's printed in the CSB in your handouts. So, verse 16. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request. Pray with me. Holy Spirit, we invite you to be present among us right now. We desire your presence. We long for you to make Jesus 
real to us. Help us to see his glory that we so often feel like we don't see. Manifest his loving presence to us now. Heavenly Father, we we surrender underneath your hand as we seek to follow Jesus. We trust you. We know you are good. We want your will for us. We want your kingdom to come in our city, God. And so we lay down every ambition that we have, every need that we feel like is a front burner issue, and we ask you to give us back only what we need and what is good for us that our maturity in Christ can handle. And would you, would you be pleased to use us in our generation for the sake of your kingdom? Make us the kind of people that you can entrust with revival in our city. And speak to us now as we open your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, you can grab a seat. So we, we've been in this journey through Ephesians, and we only have one more week after today. We will have gone through all of Ephesians. That's mind-blowing. It feels like we've been in it forever. But the premise of our series in Ephesians, we called the geography of heaven. Because what I was already mentioning, um, heaven is here is the message of Scripture in the New Testament, the gospel of good news, is that in Jesus we have access to life with God now. That heaven's come to earth. And so in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the letter, speaks continually about the heavenly places, that we as Christ followers are seated with him in the heavenly places, um, and that there are principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And it's not as though heaven is some distant place, but it's another dimension that we live in. It's like we're swimming in this dimension called heaven, which is the place where God himself dwells. But the premise of Ephesians 6 is that God's not the only one who dwells in the heavenly places. That angels, ministers of God, servants of God, spirits sent to serve his purposes dwell in the heavens, but so do demons, evil spirits that want to draw people away from the presence and power of Jesus and living for his kingdom. And so, spiritual warfare is something that, I don't know about you, but I haven't heard all that much talked about or or emphasized. It's kind of this weird place in the corner in Scripture to us, and that's a problem because it's all over Scripture. And so, as we've been walking through it, we have three principles. We had three things that we've talked about every single week that we've done it, and we'll do it again today. The first principle to our preamble on spiritual warfare is that Jesus brought the kingdom as an invasion of Satan's kingdom in the world. Uh, He did not come to invade Rome or to take back America. He came to push back the works of darkness and death over which Satan, this figure in Scripture who is the ruler over the evil spiritual realm, sought to enslave people with. Jesus came to invade that kingdom by bringing God's kingdom. Secondly, um, it's not immaturity to be aware of spiritual warfare going on in your life. It is maturity to be naive of where the enemy or Satan and demons have places of influence in your life. To be naive to that is actually immaturity. 
because he can drag you about to do whatever he wants for you to do. You're easily manipulatable by his lies. It's maturity to be aware of this stuff. And thirdly, we don't fear Satan and demons, though. We're not trying to ramp up this kind of hyper-caution to not somehow stumble into this trap that will be caught by the enemy for his bidding. We don't fear Satan because he's a defeated foe. Jesus finished his defeat on the cross. But he's still active in the world. We fear sin, not Satan. Because sin is what Satan uses in order to draw us away from the presence of Jesus. Is this sounding redundant after hearing it several times? Hopefully so. Hopefully it's sifting down into the substructure of how we envision following Jesus. Today, we are going to be looking at uh, three more elements of what Paul calls the, the armor of God. We did three last week. You can go back and listen to that online. Today, we're unpacking the last three that Paul specifically lists. Just like I mentioned last week, the armor of God, though, are not like weapons that he gives us and says, okay, now when you go out away from me into the world, here's how you do battle. Here's the armor that you wear. No, the armor is this metaphor for what we have, the strength and power that we have as Christ followers because Christ is with us. It's the armor of God in the sense that God is with us, and when he is with us, we are protected in these ways. It's not some third-party thing that he gives to us, like a tool. Make sense? That's important because there's an inherent simplicity to following Jesus. Be with him. Stick close to him. Abide in him. So, Paul says in Ephesians 6, uh, lists three more elements of our armor. And the armor is ours because we need power. I don't know if you readily think about this often, but you and I need power to follow Jesus. Um, we need power to stick close to Jesus. And if you take nothing else away this morning, let it simply be this. Jesus is stronger than the world. That is the system around us that opposes God and following Jesus. Jesus is stronger than the devil. He's defeated. Jesus is even stronger than you and your weaknesses. What scripture calls the flesh. And so as we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus through life, we have the power we need to thrive with him and to do what he calls us to do in the world for the sake of the kingdom. The only real disaster that can occur for you and for me as disciples of Jesus is to wander away from him. That's the only possible disaster in the life of a believer. And we need the armor in order to do what Paul writes four times in this section in order to stand firm, not one. So I don't know if you feel weak right now. I do. We get to take heart that Jesus is with us and Jesus is strong in these particular ways. First, Paul mentions the shield of faith. 
the shield of faith. In verse 16, in every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. The fourth thing Paul mentions, this shield is the effect of God himself present with us. And it's a long standing throughout all of Scripture, all the way back into Genesis. God is spoken of as a fortress, a shield, a place of security and stability. This shield of faith tells us that faith is this thing that as we walk in, it guards us from what Paul refers to as the flaming arrows of the evil one. Let's think about what a flaming arrow would do. Just imagine, you know, like if you've seen Braveheart or any other movie where bows and arrows are being used, they light it in fire, and the tip of it is burning, and they launch it wherever it's going. What would happen if you got hit by a flaming arrow? Yeah, it would hurt. That's, yes, that's, that is right. We need to name that. It would hurt very badly. It would pierce you. It would get into your insides. It would light you or your shield on fire. Right? This, this um, image of a flaming arrow is supposed to give us this picture that what Satan wants to do, what demons want to do, is get at you, get in you, and spread like flames. The flaming arrows in the metaphor is putting military garments on, primary, on Satan's primary tactic, which is what? What is his primary strategy? What does he do? He lies. Yes, good. He speaks lies. Jesus said in John 8 that he is the father of lies. And when he speaks, he lies because he speaks out of his essence. Satan will never tell you the truth. He might tell you a truth that's 90% right, but 10% a lie. And it will set you off course, right? So Jesus will love you if you are well behaved. Okay? There's this invitation to the love of Jesus, but it's contingent. And these aren't normally things that we cognitively think. Like we wouldn't write it out on a piece of paper and say, well, yeah, obviously that's true. No, it. If you've been following Jesus for very long and been around discipling communities and heard scripture, most of the time you're not going to look at a bold-faced lie and say, yes, that is true. It attacks us and burns us. It spreads in us like emotion. Think about when you feel overcome by emotion or passion or desire and temptation. It's not cognitive primarily. Think about anger. Anyone been angry this week? Anger is this thing that if you don't deal with, it takes over more and takes over more and directs the way that you treat people and directs the way that you uh, interact with others. It directs the way that you view yourself. You start to think like, yeah, I am in the right, and they're in the wrong. So it puffs you up in pride, and it spreads, and it spreads. So I was angry this week uh, at a referee in my son's flag football game. First bad call that he made was like, oh, hey, man, didn't you see that? Okay, can you watch for that next time? Yeah, okay. Happens again, worse. Doesn't call the flag. Hey, did you see it that time? 
What? No, I didn't see it. Oh my gosh. That time it led to an interception, so it was like a big deal, and I'm starting to feel like the arrow has sunk in, and it's kindling, and I feel the anger starting to come up. And then another call that led to another interception. And it's a tight game, and we have a really good team, and so my expectations are through the roof. And we might lose this thing if the refs are against us. And so I, I was mean. I was mean. Like, I kind of pitted the refs against each other. And was like, this ref told me on the side that I was right and you were wrong. Yep, that's what your pastor said. And so, first call starts to kindle. Second call, it's like putting air into the fire. Third call, it boils over. I mix metaphors there, but it boils over. And it comes out in really hideous ways. It's trying to divide other people then. Just squish someone down into the wrongness and shame of messing up and making mistakes. So anger is actually a, 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 an arrow, an arrow that comes at us and begins to boil over. That's why Paul actually in Ephesians 4 says, do not let the sun go down on your anger and thus give the devil an opportunity. The word opportunity there is the Greek word topos. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Brian, you can tell me afterwards. He's our resident Greek scholar. Um, you gave me a thumbs up. Okay, great. And it's where we get the word topography. It's a, it denotes a place. Don't give the devil a place in your life by being angry. So it's commonly referred to as a foothold. A foothold is a tactic that the enemy will use in your life to take a small part, a small place, but a place nonetheless that he can hold on to you. That he can slowly take over more and more and the fire starts to kindle and it's like, oh, we justify allowing it. It's not that bad. It's just a small little lie. And then it spreads and takes over more. That's why Paul actually already has instructed us in Ephesians, give the devil no opportunity with something like anger. Deal with it, is what Paul says specifically. If you're angry at someone, go and talk to them. You can even say, hey, it made me angry when you said this. And I don't want to be angry, and I want to reconcile. And I don't know what was going on in that moment. But what Satan tries to do with his fiery arrows is speak a lie so that it would feel real, so that it would dictate our life, so that we would begin to participate with his will over God's will. And the shield of faith sees the arrow coming, maybe even feels the arrow's heat, and says, no, I believe God. God says that anger is not my friend to make me powerful over other people. Anger is actually dangerous, and I need to deal with it lest it consume me. Do you see how faith is our believing God? Yes, but it cannot stop there. James 2 says that Satan and demons believe that God is real and that he actually is the only real God. And they, they shudder at him. They walk in fear of him. But they don't have faith. It's, it's really common among the church to think that belief or faith is mere assent 
to the fact that Jesus is real. Demons believe Jesus is real, but they don't have faith. Faith is not merely believing in Jesus. Faith is acting in accordance with Jesus. It's banking your life on Jesus and his word. So the shield of faith is in a way hearing what God says is true and living in accordance with what is true even when the fiery dart that's coming at us is far more convincing in its feeling. When you believe God at his word, when you trust Jesus who is the true one who cannot lie to you, you are guarded from one of the enemy's primary tactics. Jesus is faithful. So when he says something like, it's more blessed to give than to receive, which Paul mentions in Acts 20, he's not telling us something that is a burden heaped on believers. He's telling us how reality is. If you're free from stuff, if you're free from believing the subtle lie that you'll be happier if you get more and actually believe that you'll be more joyous and whole in freely living a generous life, that shield, that faith that you have in saying, Jesus, I don't understand how that could work, but I believe you and so I'm going to be generous even when I don't feel like it, which is like one of the seven deadly sins of our cultural moment. Do what you don't feel like. That's faith. It's, it's believing something when you can't see it or feel it. So don't just follow what you feel, lest you put down the shield of faith and are pierced by all of the enemy's arrows. Then actually what starts to burn and rise out of you is the enemy's will. And if you've been pierced this week like I was pierced on that football field, the invitation is to turn back to Jesus, walk back into the light, and experience the healing balm of Jesus in his kindness. That he's the one who extinguishes the flame. That he's the one who heals the, the, the wound that the enemy has. He's the one who cleans off the foothold that the enemy has taken in your life. Okay? God is merciful. God is merciful, but we cannot just assume his mercy instead of relationally entering back into his presence for that healing through confession. Shield of faith. Second thing that Paul mentions is the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. Now you wear a helmet on your head. You're using it properly. Head's really vulnerable. You get hit in the head without a helmet on in battle. You're KO'd most of the time. And I think what this is referencing is speaking to the hope that we have that covers our mind. That no matter how perilous or painful our life or the moment that maybe even you're sitting here may be, no matter how depressed or despairing the moment that we need to live with is, we always have hope because God is a Savior. That's not merely describing something he does. It's describing who he is. 
He's the kind of person who cannot meet someone in a place of hopelessness and, and resist lunging forward to work salvation. And when you think salvation, it needs to be more robust than just when you die, you go to heaven to be with God forever. That there is truth to that. And in some ways, I think we need to pick that back up and realize our hope's not in this life. But we can't leave it there. In the New Testament, there are three ways in which we have been saved by God. We have been saved in the past, our moment of being called out of darkness into the light of the presence of Jesus. That's the moment where you're saved out of darkness and sin into the presence of God rather than the aloneness that we were, prior, that we were in prior. We've been saved, so our past has been reconciled. We are being saved. And so here and now, when we feel weak, when we feel exhausted, when we feel like we can't continue on in following Jesus, when it feels like, oh my gosh, another person who has more need and I've already met 15 needs this week, when am I going to get to meet my own needs? God saves us again and again and again and again. Provides us the energy to continue to live the life of love that it's called us to. We are presently being saved. Some people, some theologians say we're being, we're being saved from the power of sin. We're no longer enslaved. And in the future sense, we will be saved fully and finally one day. And just think about moments where you have been without hope. Where you were in a situation that doom and gloom was the only seemingly real possibility. It's hard to even get up out of bed on those days. Like sleep is a, is, a, is a way that we escape. We just say, I can't even deal with today. And there are a lot of studies that have been done on resilience and endurance, which is sort of what Paul's talking about in this whole section, standing fast to the Lord. And in all of those, they say continually, the most steadfast, stable, enduring people are the ones who are most hopeful. Because hope tells you, I don't know how this is going to work out. But it will work out. In fact, it must work out. And if you follow Jesus, your life must work out. You have been saved. The enemy has been defeated. Your sin has been nailed to a cross. There is no longer a record of debt over you to account for. You will one day be saved from all the misery of still living in this world that's racked by death. So we are never hopeless. It's almost as though we don't have permission to live hopeless. We know Jesus. We have access to him. And he's tender and kind in our moments of weakness. And sometimes the hardest thing is to be open to the possibility that there's still hope. But what hope does is it guards our mind from despair. Because despair will sideline you and make you miserable. So I wonder today if you feel more like despairing than hopeful. And I would just invite you to see the hope that you have in Jesus. He is alive. 
I think about all that I see in the midst of our community, and I see the reality of Jesus in the way that so many of you love and serve one another. He is real. He's here. He's among us. We're together. Most of the time, hopelessness comes when we feel like we're alone, when, when our life is just on our own shoulders, we feel like failures. Your life is not about you, and that is so freeing and hopeful. We get to love God, we get to love people, and we get to be swept up into the new heavens and the new earth and rewarded for all of our faithfulness. So we put on the helmet of salvation. We have hope in God, the saving one. We get to even take risks for him. And the last thing that Paul mentions is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Notice it's the only weapon in the midst of this list. Everything else is armor. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God is not, is not merely Scripture. It's not just the Bible. Sometimes we get sloppy with the way that we use terms in, our, in, in, in Scripture itself or in our Christian circles. When we reference the Word of God, we're not first and foremost talking about the Bible. Um, John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, the word of God is most precisely Jesus. Because what happens when God's word comes into the world, God's word throughout scripture, is his speaking out into the world and causing things to happen. God spoke, let there be light. Boom, light. When God talks, it is. The Word of God is His speaking out into the world in a way that causes effect. That's why Isaiah says the Word of God does not return to Him void. It accomplishes its purpose. Now, oftentimes, that Word is heard in here. And so, I would encourage you, be immersed in Scripture. We need Scripture. If you need help exploring Scripture and understanding it, because I know it is long and it feels very foreign to us because it was not primarily written about us. Uh, Bible Project is an amazing tool to help you dig in and understand Scripture. They have these videos that are overviews of Scripture so that we would understand the story that we're swept up into. But here's what you and I need to know. Um, in Jesus and in speaking Jesus, we have power that affects the world around us. So, one of the most practical ways that this occurs is in actual engaging with the demonic around us. I don't know what your background is in the church, uh, but we see all over the Gospels that one of Jesus' primary work uh, works was to deliver people from being demonized. Remember we talked about footholds and being controlled and influenced by the enemy? Uh, that still happens today. Uh, a wise old Christian that I know who's been to third world countries and does a lot of, of work there with microloans for farmers, he said in his experience, he comes back to the United States and it's as though evil spirits crawl around trying to, trying to stay hidden. But when you go to other places where they're far more aware of spiritual realities, demons stand up and seek to intimidate. 
and demonization around us is often this kind of subtle, embracing lies that control our behavior. And so, for instance, sat down doing post-marital with this couple that we had done premarital with, and then they got married, and it was a follow-up session. And as we start to talk about problems that they're encountering, and we seek to pray for them, as I start to pray for the specific thing that was shared, um, one of them starts shaking. And says that they have suddenly experienced an overwhelming fear. But the way that they said it was as quiet as though couldn't even muster a loud voice. And the other spouse uh, had told us some just really, um, had shared ways that he had neglected uh, his role as a husband and had sinned. You want to give that over to Jesus and walk out of darkness into light? I said, I do. And so we, you pray, you talk to God, and we'll just be here with you praying. And he couldn't get the words out of his mouth. Could not speak. Literally bound. This is demonization. Demonization occurs in our reality in predominantly this way. When you try and get close to Jesus and you feel overwhelming resistance to doing it. Very likely demonization. I've seen more Christians experience demonization than non-Christians. And the sword of the Spirit is more powerful than evil spirits. So in that moment, this is as simple as spiritual warfare is. Lord Jesus, we pray for Steve. Call him Steve. We pray for Steve right now. In your mighty name, you've already defeated whatever spirit is holding him back from entering your presence to give over his sin. And so, in your name, we simply pronounce your victory. We bind whatever is binding him and say, be gone from the Son of God. Guess what? Suddenly, he just starts talking. He starts praying. He starts laying before the Lord the ways that he had wandered. So some of you are probably thinking, that's very scary. I don't like that. (laughs) And I would rather live as though what's real is only what I can see and touch and feel safe about. Here's the thing. You should fear wandering from Jesus. You should be afraid of wandering from Jesus. We live in a world ruled by death. All of us try and ignore it. Jesus brings life. Sticking close to Jesus is life. When he speaks something to you and you hear the word, obeying it is not moral obligation, it's invitation to real living. It is a terrifying thing to wander from the only one who can give us life. Fear of God something that we need to cultivate in our generation. And it's not fear in the sense of, of like uh, cowering under a mean-spirited father, but it's fear of leaving our father. Where else do we have to go? The disciples told Jesus, right? You're the one who has the words of life. And so when we take up the sword of the Spirit and speak Jesus, we have actual power against the evil one. 
When we speak truth, when others are believing lies, the truth somehow cuts at those lies. And I don't pretend to understand how all of that works. Not studying metaphysics and trying to prove something on a real tangible level, other than the fact that I can attest to you, it happens, it's real, it's true. The Spirit is faithful when we take up the Word of God, we speak Jesus, we speak the Scriptures when they're pertinent in a circumstance where death and evil spirits have, have um, brought hopelessness and misery and pain and bondage and freedom occurs. So I want to encourage you, yeah, know Scripture, believe Scripture, but also Believe that Jesus entrusts to you, if you are one of his followers, his authority in his name. I once heard someone say the most terrifying thing to Satan and demons is a child of God who understands what they've been given. That means what Satan and demons rejoice in are children of God who cower in fear thinking that if they, if they actually step out in courage, they'll be undone and destroyed. Sister, brother, I just want to encourage you, to plead with you, to see that if you follow Jesus, he has entrusted to you his victory to walk in. And so, maturing in that takes community. That's why we're a church family together. It's not something that flips overnight. We're going to do classes at some point, talking through how do we actually walk in the power that we've been given, the authority, going straight headlong into spiritual warfare and talking about strategies of Satan and demons. But for now, no, you have a sword. The Spirit is the power. Jesus is the one who is the sword. And I'm going to close our time by reading Hebrews 4. Because it's not the only place where the sword is mentioned. Revelation mentions Jesus coming back to earth to reunite heaven and earth together. And he has a sword that comes out of his mouth. And here in Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 12, we see something that should resonate with this passage in Ephesians 6. Sorry, not, yeah, verse 12, verse 12. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword. It can cut through anything it wants to. Nothing can resist it. Penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, it can divide even unseen things. Listen to this. No creature is hidden from him. Wait a second. We were just talking about the word. It's Jesus. Jesus is the Word. The Word is living and alive and active because Jesus is the Word. Jesus is working in the world. No creature is hidden from Him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Friends, we have Jesus with us. And as we come to the end of this long passage on spiritual warfare, I want to reiterate for us, the powerful one is on our side. The victor is with us. Will we assert ourselves 
to grow and learn to wield the weapon and follow the Spirit that we can actually push back darkness in His name around us. I mean, do we want to be used by God to push back darkness around us? Hopefully. Yeah? The power's not in us. It's not in our grand competence. I mentioned last week, I'll mention it again. You all are very smart. But actually, that might be great weakness when it comes to growing in spiritual strength. Because it relies, we cannot rely on our own capacities and competencies. It's humbling to say, in Jesus' name, be bound. Because it's like, well, if Jesus doesn't show up, I look like an idiot right now. I look powerless. But we are powerless apart from 